Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. I hope you are doing well. And for those who just celebrated Thanksgiving, I hope it was a great one. For some people, Halloween might be the beginning of the holiday season, but for me, Thanksgiving is when it really kicks off. So I really like this time of year and all that it represents. I personally had a great Thanksgiving this year. We kicked off the day with a little bit of football, and yes, pun intended, and then I got to eat with a group of 20 other people comprised of family and friends, and it was just great. Now, I know for some people, when you are celebrating Thanksgiving and any family gathering, it can be a little strange. And one of the reasons that I'm excited about today's interview, which is a little bit lengthier than usual, is that we delve into the topic of how to make the most of family gatherings, even when they could be awkward. A lot of this comes down to a mentality that allows leaders, which I hope you are, to act mature and put aside disagreements for the good of everyone else. I think this is going to be a valuable episode, even if you have great family dynamics during holidays, because there are always places in our lives where we could use a little bit more maturity, a little bit more perspective, and I think you are going to get some of that today. Now, our guest today is a professional speaker, coach, teacher, and Amazon best-selling author with years of experience in a wide variety of leadership roles. As I said on Monday, he is the author of a book called Inverted Leadership, Leading Others by Forgetting About Yourself. He's blessed to be able to share much of what he's learned with audiences and clients, and he loves to engage them through storytelling and humor. He currently lives in his hometown of Anniston, Alabama with his wife, his two daughters, and his two dogs, Butterscotch and Bruiser. Here is Joel Hallbaker. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Looking forward to chatting today. And it just makes me chuckle anytime someone talks about Bruiser, just because I've never met a more aptly named animal in the whole of my life. So between your your two dogs, Butterscotch and Bruiser, is Bruiser the more interesting and exciting one? Uh, he's definitely the one who is more excitable. Uh, they're, they're both interesting and exciting in their own ways, but he is um, he is just a bundle of energy. Like we went for a two-mile run this morning, and this afternoon he's already rambunctious and ready to go again. And he just is – like when we, we got him from – so both our dogs are, are rescue dogs. When we got him from a shelter, and we took him to the vet for a checkup like two months after we'd had him, and uh, we, we came in and the vet went, oh, Bruiser, I remember you from when you were at the shelter. <laughs> he was just very high energy. I'm like, yeah, he, he's still high energy. A memorable dog, huh? He is. And, he, and his name's great because I'm telling you, he will run into things and not notice they are there. And if it's your leg, your leg is what is bruised, not his head. Hmm. Well, I like to start off every interview with a few questions to help us to get to know you better as a leader and may even provide some insight and actionable items for us as well. So you ready for these? Absolutely. 
What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Most of those uh, I learned either from my dad or from uh, UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden. One of the things coach Wooden said is that when you're through learning, you're through. Uh, and so a large part for me, a large part of leadership is just continuing to grow in what we know and in what we do. Uh, my dad was also very influential. He taught me a number of things. I actually wrote an ebook about it. And one of the things he told me um, is that it's not about you. Uh, it's really about serving other people. And that's uh, a large part of the core of my leadership message. One of the things he taught me as well was uh, to be respectful to everyone, even when they don't show you the same courtesy. I wish I could say that I was as good at that as he was, uh, but I fail at that a lot of the time, but it's still something I strive for uh, because if we can be respectful toward people, even when they aren't toward us, it tends to elevate the level of conversation. So I think that's an important aspect of leadership as well. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is confident, humble, and courageous. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? What can I do differently? to improve what I'm already good at and what can I do differently to shore up my weaknesses? What book would you recommend to leaders? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, one of my favorite books I ever read was actually Rudy Giuliani's book, Leadership, that he wrote in the wake of 9-11. Uh, whatever you may think of politics and Giuliani now, uh, most people will agree that he handled the post 9-11 situation really, really well in New York City. And his book on leadership was really excellent. Uh, I'd also recommend anything written by Coach K at Duke University. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would it be? Uh, it would be to um, learn how to consciously listen better. And what I mean by that, just the, the simple action step would be learn how to ask one good follow-up question anytime someone mentions something to you. Uh, whether you want to call them subordinates or like for me, it's soccer players or students. If someone tells me something, if I can ask one good follow-up question, that's a really key part of leadership because it shows them that I care enough to listen. It also allows me to learn more about that situation so that maybe I don't go off on a mistaken tangent because I misunderstood what they said. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I really believe it's better to ask why, but it depends on how you say that word. Um, and it's not why as in why would you do that? It's why as in why would you do that? And, and what I mean is what is the end goal of that particular thought, action, or habit? And I haven't really brought this up in previous answers to this question, but a lot of it does come down to how you interpret the question and how you hear the questions yes. that are asked to you, which I think is really insightful and important as a leader to realize that it's not only a question you ask, but how you ask it and how it's yes. received by the person you're asking it to, right? 100% agree with you. I, uh, I've got something posted in my classroom that I wrote years ago, and it, it is basically uh, challenging the students with a question, what are you doing here? And you can ask that question like four different ways, putting the emphasis on the different words. Like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing? What are you doing here? You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so even that word or, or that, that, that sentence, like you just said, um, what I'm saying or what you're hearing can be interpreted lots of different ways. And so it's not just the message, it's how you present the message that really uh, is, a, is a big part of what, uh, what actually gets done. I read an article about this actually earlier today about how text messaging can be unintentionally very damaging on relationships because of the tendency and ease with which we can misinterpret text messages. And I think that gets along the same kind of point that you're making there. 
So I, I want to get into your book, Inverted Leadership, Leading Others by Forgetting About Yourself, which was an Amazon bestselling book in just a minute. But there have been a couple other things that I think are interesting about your story that I'd like to delve into a little bit. First of all, I know you are a speaker and we haven't really talked a lot on this podcast about the benefit of speaking on getting your message out and opening up doors. But is there anything that you could share with the listeners about the opportunities that have opened up for you through speaking? Certainly. I uh, I love doing it. As we were talking before we came on, I mentioned that, you know, the, the hardest audience I've ever been in front of is uh, high school freshmen. Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, in my day job, I'm a history teacher and I spend a lot of time with that group of kids. Um, and so it's a, you know, I feel like if I can, uh, if I can keep their interest in the subject matter, then if you put me on a stage in front of a, an audience that actually wants to be there, um, that's much easier. At the same time, it also comes with other challenges because it's harder to build trust with an audience in a 15 to 60 minute presentation than it is to build trust with students over the course of a whole semester or school year. And so speaking presents its own challenges, uh, but it's also opened some really unique doors. I've been able to speak at a number of colleges and universities. I've been able to speak at uh, conferences all over the Southeast. I've made some really neat contacts through the speaking world and through writing my book. And uh, it's just, you know, it's caused me to learn things that I previously had not even thought about learning. Uh, I never, I, I never had any dreams of being an entrepreneur. I never had any dreams of owning my own business or, uh, or anything like that. But to be a professional speaker means that you need to, um, you need to learn the business side of being a professional speaker. And so it's caused me to have to grow in not just my general knowledge, but in my knowledge of subjects that I'd never even, you know, was terribly aware that they existed. Like I know that marketing is a thing and I know that business is a thing and you know, but those are not anything I studied. I was a history major. That's what I really spent my time doing. And so it's opened a whole lot of new doors in terms of um, what I'm interested in. And that's been really neat for me because it's caused me to start thinking in a different way. And, uh, and so I'm grateful for that because, again, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, one of the key parts of being a leader is always expanding our knowledge base. And so one of the things speaking has done for me is it's caused me to look at the world in a different way uh, by viewing it from the lens of a businessman and entrepreneur, not just from the lens of like teacher, coach, dad guy. And do you have any recommendations for people who might be interested in delving into the world of speaking as far as getting speaking engagements and being able to find stages to speak on? Certainly. So there's a number of places that you can look. Uh, the place that I've gone the most frequently, and this is something that I, I love to endorse, even though, you know, like I'm not getting any payment for endorsing it. I just love it because it's a great program. The best program that I've found, if you're looking at speaking, is uh, especially if you're just starting out, uh, is something called the Speaker Lab with a man named Grant Baldwin. Uh, he was a youth pastor and became a professional speaker and has since then trained hundreds and hundreds of other speakers to go on to become professional speakers. And I'm actually going through his program again right now, um, learning from it and learning the business side of it and learning the marketing side of it. And uh, it just, it's amazing. He's got a, a podcast that provides a lot of great insight. Uh, it's got a website with a lot of great free tools on it. Got a couple paid programs that are really good. Uh, and so I've, uh, I learned a lot from him about how to get on stages where you're not getting paid. And I'm also learning about how to get on stages where you do get paid. And both of them come with uh, pros and cons. Uh, but it, it's just a great program. Uh, again, especially whether you're starting out or whether you've been doing it for a while, it's got lots of great resources and information. So if there's anybody out there who's interested in becoming a speaker, I would certainly check out the Speaker Lab with, uh, with Grant Baldwin. It's really, really good stuff. 
Another thing I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit is some of your heroes and role models. You mentioned your dad and the book that you developed from some of his insight and wisdom. You've also mentioned a couple coaches. Who have been some of the people who have been influential in your life and how have they become role models for you? Well, my dad certainly is the biggest. Uh, I, I purposely patterned a lot of my life after my dad, not necessarily my professional life, but in terms of who I am and a lot of the interests I have, I, I got those from my dad. Uh, another big influence was my youth pastor in high school. He was also my soccer coach. Um, he played soccer at Covenant College, and so I went and played soccer at Covenant College, and he and I are still good buddies today. Uh, he was in my second wedding, and um, he's just an amazing man. And so I would say after my father, he's probably been the single biggest male influence uh, in my life. Uh, my father-in-law is a big influence on me. My wife's dad, he's an amazing man. He's a leader in our church, and he showed me grace uh, at a time when I really, really was in desperate need of it. Uh, my first father-in-law was much the same way. He's also been a role model and an inspiration for me uh, for much the same reason. And so I'm very thankful for those guys. I've had a series of great coaches as well, baseball coaches, uh, basketball coaches, especially soccer coaches. Um, in terms of people that maybe I haven't met that have been influential as well, uh, people like Sir Alex Ferguson, the former manager for Manchester United soccer team, uh, Coach K at Duke. Uh, who I actually was able to uh, have a little bit of inter uh, email exchange with a couple summers ago. I was at Duke helping teach a uh, summer studies class, and uh, Coach K wasn't there at the time, but I left his secretary one of my books, and he was kind enough to email me about it a few weeks later, and that was that was pretty cool for me. Yeah. Um, and then I also I love the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and also the writings of C.S. Lewis, uh, Narnia, and uh, Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. I've taught a Bible class based on mere Christianity and screw tape letters, I think seven different semesters. And so those books, I just, I love them tremendously and they've had a big impact and influence on my life as well. So leadership in families is very important. And since you just brought it up in an answer a second ago, I know something that you are very passionate about is helping blended families. So can you talk for a second about leadership in that part of your world? Absolutely. Um, my parents divorced when I was in middle school, and uh, my mom started dating a man about a year after that that I still call my stepdad, even though he and my mom never married. He's, a, he's an amazing man, and uh, he also has been one of my inspirations and role models. And so my parents set a great example for what a divorce could look like. I didn't realize how unique their example was until I got older and saw other people and had met other friends whose parents were also divorced, but it was ugly and it was hurtful and the kids were being used as pawns. Uh, and uh, my goal was to get married and have kids and raise a family and never go through divorce because it's hard and painful on everybody. And I failed at that. Uh, I got married and had kids and then went through a divorce eight and a half years after that first marriage. That was about a decade ago. Uh, fortunately, like I said, my parents and my stepdad set a, uh, set a great example for me in terms of how to have a, a friendly atmosphere even after a divorce. Uh, and so that was something that really paid big dividends when I went through divorce and then when my ex-wife got remarried and when I got remarried. We actually live in a small Alabama town where everybody knows everybody and we live about a mile and a half apart and we actually get along pretty well. Um, you know, we, we communicate on a regular basis. We see each other at sporting events or the kids' school programs or whatever, and it, it's not a problem. I actually coached basketball and soccer with my girl's stepdad a couple years ago. He was my soccer assistant coach. I was his basketball assistant coach. We coached our younger daughter's teams together, and, we, you know, it was, um, it was a great example for them. It was also just a lot of fun. He's a nice guy, and I'm thankful for that. 
because again, uh, I see, especially in the, the school where I teach, I see a lot of kids who come from broken homes where the situation is not good and it's not friendly and it's not even trying to be amicable. And the people that suffer the most from that are not the parents, it's the kids. Uh, and so one of the, yeah, like you mentioned, one of the passions I have is to help blended families learn how to get along better, uh, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of difficulties, uh, because as you mentioned, leadership in the home is extremely important. And unfortunately, when we become adults, it's like we oftentimes forget all of the things that we were taught as children. We were taught things like just because someone's mean to you doesn't mean you have to be mean to them. Just because someone talks badly about you doesn't mean you have to talk badly about them. And unfortunately, a lot of adults think that a divorce is an excuse to forget all that. Well, they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them back. And I heard they were bad-mouthing me, so I'm going to bad-mouth them back. And what they did was inconvenient for me, so I'm going to inconvenience them back. And again, the, the people that get hurt the most from that are kids. And, and ultimately, that's a failure of leadership because you're setting a poor example for your children when you do that. And so again, I like to, uh, I like to try to encourage people to at least consider trying to do things differently. I mean, if I walk into a situation where parents are hurting and I say, everything you're doing is wrong, they're just going to punch me in the face because I would deserve it. But if I can come in and, and speak with empathy and say, listen, I understand what your struggle is. I've been there. What I want to do is invite you to try looking at things a little bit differently and, and maybe look at considering a different style of leadership within your home that's going to allow your kids to flourish instead of causing the pain that your, your kids are experiencing right now. Uh, and I think by doing that, it allows people to change their viewpoint and therefore change their mindset as to how they approach a divorced uh, type situation. So when you're navigating a really painful situation like a divorce, what are some of the top character traits or practices or mindsets that you would recommend to people? Because I'm not saying that other painful situations are the same as a divorce, but all of us, whether we go through uh, a divorce, which hopefully very few people will, or if you're going through any other type of, of pain in your life, mm -hmm. there are there are certain ways to think and act right. and values to hold. And I'd love to hear from you what you think some of those are. Uh, well, certainly as it applies to divorce, one of the biggest ones is something that we all learned in uh, grade school that we often forget. And that's just the golden rule to, to treat people the way we want to be treated. And I would argue that most of the time, again, speaking from experience as a, as a kid who grew up with the divorced parents and then also has been through divorce as an adult with kids, most of the time when people are hurting, we forget the golden rule. And so we treat people not like we would want to be treated, but we treat people based on our pain. And so I'd encourage people when you are hurting, at least be willing to try to take the extra half second and step back and say, am I doing this because it's good or necessary or right? Or am I doing this because I'm hurting and I want to lash back out? And that's very easy to say. And I understand it's very hard to do. And I'm not going to pretend that I never did anything based out of my hurt. I certainly did. And that's part of how I know it never ends well. If, if my ex-wife hurt me and I went out of my way to hurt her back, nobody benefits from that. There's no winning a divorce when that's how you treat each other. And so one of the big things is to just remember the golden rule that we all learned as kids. Uh, another one is to uh, exercise patience and try to remain calm in the face of what could be very quickly escalating uh, tempers. Uh, you know, the uh, Proverbs teaches us that a soft answer turns away wrath. And so I've seen that when people are getting angry and their voices are raising and they start getting really upset, if you could just step back and calmly respond and respectfully respond 
most of the time that will help the other people also do the same thing. Whereas if you yell at me and I yell at you, neither of us is listening. We're just getting angry and we're just more likely to hurt each other. And again, I think that's important to remember from a leadership standpoint because what we do, our children watch. And so um, I'm really thankful this past summer, my older daughter turned 15 and she expressed some interest in dating, which she has not been allowed to do before. And so what we did is we called a big family council at a local Burger King and we sat on a, at a table out by the rest or out by the uh, playground uh, because at my girl's at my girl's mom's house, they have a little toddler brother, uh, her and her, uh, that is my ex-wife and her husband have a four-year-old together. And um, so my girls have a little brother. And so we all had this big family meeting where the four parents and my oldest daughter sat at the table. My younger daughter watched her little brother on the playground for a while. And we sat there for two hours and we talked about what it would look like for our older daughter to start dating. And we listened to her input and all four parents had some input and we didn't all agree, but we were able to come to some respectful compromises that everybody was pretty happy with. Nobody got everything they wanted, but everybody did get to have input. And that was a really powerful thing for us to be able to sit down and do because one, teenagers dating is a big deal. Whether we want to admit it or not, especially as parents, the world is different now than it was when we were children. We need to make sure that we are staying engaged in our kids' lives. And so it was, it was important for us all to be on the same page as in if our daughter's going to date, what's that look like? But it was also powerful because both of our daughters got to see it what it looks like for their four parents to sit down and lovingly, respectfully talk with her about something very important to her. That's a great example of leadership for her that she's going to remember the rest of her life. And that's a story she's going to tell. And people are going to look at her and they're going to go, your four parents did what? You know what I mean? Because I remember doing that um, when I was a teenager. I remember after my parents divorced, we had the weirdest Thanksgivings I've ever seen. Hmm. So we, we live in Alabama and uh, my stepdad is a large black man. And um, that was taboo in the 90s for my mom, a white lady, to be dating a, a black man here in Alabama. We still got funny looks when we went to the mall or we went out to eat or whatever. And so we would have Thanksgivings together at mom's house, which used to be both my parents together. Dad moved out when they got divorced. So at the Thanksgiving dinner table, we had mom and dad and my stepdad and all the kids. And then my grandmother, who is very old school Southerner, she was born during the Great Depression, and she was not as accommodating to minorities as we would prefer her to be. Hmm. Um, I love her to death, but you know, that was just, that was her generation, and she didn't ever learn any better until after my stepdad and my mom had been together for a while. Um, eventually, she came around, which we're very thankful for. But like, at Thanksgiving, it was mom and dad, and my stepdad, and sometimes my stepdad's dad, and all the kids. And we had a great time. And I didn't know that that was weird until I told that story in my college dorm room. And the, the other guys in the room looked at me and said, what? Who is it your Thanksgiving? And I told them again. And I'm like, you didn't think that was strange? I said, no, it was, it was my family together. Isn't that what Thanksgiving is? You know, but again, I look back on that and I realize that was a hugely powerful example for me. Because my dad and my stepdad became good friends. And my dad and my stepdad's dad became good friends. And I look at that and I think, well, that is really amazing, and it, it, it shows me that if we're willing to be respectful, we can actually get along with, with almost anybody. People that maybe we're, you know, culture would tell us you're supposed to hate them or you're supposed to dislike them uh, or whatever it may be. Like, no, there's no reason to do that. You can get along with people. You can be respectful to people. And again, if, if we are doing that, that's setting a very powerful example for people who are watching us. So in my case, I teach in a school where a lot of the kids come from broken homes. So I can share with them. I come from a similar home and I've been through it as an adult. 
And I'm very thankful to say I learned from some of the mistakes I made. So let me share with you some of those things. And it instantly allows me to build some trust with them because they know that I'm not just talking about something that I have no idea what it's like because I've never been through it. So when we talk about the difficulties of the holidays coming up or we talk about the difficulties of um, having multiple households or what if parents can't get along at birthday parties, like I've seen that. I've either seen it through other people that I know or I've seen it in my life. And when I share that with kids, they have a lot more trust in me. And so because of that, they're a lot more willing to work hard for me because they know that I have their best interests at heart instead of just my own. So your book is Inverted Leadership, Leading Others by Forgetting About Yourself. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the book and the meaning of the title. So I love the movie Top Gun. And if those of you who are familiar with Top Gun, remember there's a scene where uh, Maverick and Goose are talking about how they flew with this Russian MiG inverted, right? They're upside down. And that's how I think about leadership because for a lot of people my generation uh, and older, we grew up thinking leadership was just top-down mandates or top-down management. Like, again, my dad and my stepdad and my mom were all military. So leadership looked a lot like giving orders and making sure things, those orders were carried out. And then as I got older, I realized that's not what it is. Leadership is actually empowering the people that are in your charge to do their jobs well because if you do that, everything gets taken care of. And so it caused me to think about leadership sort of upside down. And that's where the the title came from, inverted leadership. Um, And so for me, what that looks like is my job has nothing to do with making myself look better. My job as a teacher has to do with making sure my students are becoming better at whatever students are supposed to be becoming better at. So that's reading and writing and thinking and history and that kind of stuff in my classroom. Right? It doesn't have to do with me trying to win teacher awards. It has to do with, are my students learning and becoming better people? Am I teaching them more than just history? Am I teaching them values? Am I teaching them morals? Because if I'm doing that and helping them become better people, then we're all winning. Right? And so leadership is much more about taking care of the people under you. Uh, in the book, I define leadership as the art of helping other people become better versions of themselves through positive influence. Right? It's the art of positively influencing other people to help them become better versions of themselves. So if I can do that, if I can help people realize they have more potential than they've thought about before, and then if I can help them become better at what they're already good at and shore up some of their weaknesses, then I'm doing my job as a teacher. I'm doing my job as a soccer coach. I'm doing my job as a husband and as a father and as a speaker and as an author. And so really leadership means taking the people that are in your charge and helping them get better at whatever it is they're supposed to be getting better at. So you have a term in your book, which is confident humility. And I think we all have a conception of what humility is, and we can imagine what it would look like to have confidence in that. But I'd like for you to develop that thought and kind of explain what you mean when you use that in your book. When I first um, came up with that term a couple of years ago, I had to explain it in all the speeches I gave because people would look at me kind of they'd cock their head sideways, you know, like what? Um, and it's because it sounds like a paradox, which you kind of inferred there. Um, Yeah, confidence is the idea of just being sure of what you're good at. And humility is just forgetting about yourself. C.S. Lewis tells us humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. So confident humility means taking what you're good at and using it, not for your own good, but in the service of others. That's all it is. Uh, And I love that idea. Unfortunately, I didn't copyright it because this past summer, somebody else wrote a book with the title Confident Humility. Hmm. And it's great. I haven't read it, but I really want to. And I want to reach out to this person and be like, hey, that's a great idea. I wish that I had written a book with that as the title too. Uh, because the book's, <laughs> the subtitle's great. It's, the book's called Confident Humility, How to Become Your Full Self Without Becoming Full of Yourself. 
And I'm like, yes, that's exactly the same idea I thought of. Well done. So I'm glad I'm not the only one thinking about that. But that's the <laughs> idea. You know what I mean? It's, it's using what you're good at to serve other people. That's all it is. That's at its core. That's what confident humility is. And, and so at the beginning, you said, you know, pick three descriptors to, to say leaders should be. And I said confident and humble and courageous because you have to be sure of yourself for other people to follow you. And if I'm in the classroom and kids say, what are we going to learn about? And I say, well, I'm not really sure. I haven't really looked at your book and I'm not really sure what we're supposed to say. I've already lost them. 10 seconds into the semester and they're done with me, right? You have to be confident, but you also have to be humble enough to realize one, it's not about you. And two, you don't have all the answers. There's not, I guarantee every kid in that classroom knows more about something than I do. Now that's something may not be terribly relevant to our class, but that also means that I don't know everything in the world and I need to be willing to admit that. So you got to be confident, you got to be humble, and you have to be courageous because the other part of it is um, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, it's going to bother somebody. And you have to have the courage to stand by your convictions. As a soccer coach, I get second-guessed all the time. Why'd you play this kid? Why'd you play this kid in this position? Why'd you play this formation? Why didn't you attack this, right? And as a parent, you get second-guessed all the time, both by your kids and by other parents. And as a teacher, good heavens above, you get second-guessed by the students and you get second-guessed by their parents and you get second-guessed by people that the parents and the kids talk to. And you have to be courageous enough to say, no, no, here's what I believe. Here's what I stand for. Here's how we're going to do it. And having having that courage and confidence, I think a lot of people are right there with you. How do you develop that, though? So part of it just becomes uh, doing it. That is, you've got to you've got to do it to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, or it doesn't work as well as you'd like, that's where the humility comes in. Where you got to go, okay, well, let's reevaluate and maybe try something else. Um, I don't know. I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of soccer formations uh, in case your listeners don't want to hear that. But when I started coaching at the most recent high school job I had, we played a certain formation and it worked okay. And then perhaps our most important player, definitely our most important attacking player got injured before the next season. She had been responsible for half our goals. And so I thought, well, if we try to play in the same formation with a different player there, it's not going to work as well. So we changed everything about how we played in terms of our formation and the principles. And it actually worked out even better the next year. Now, if it hadn't worked out, I'd have had to try something else. But it was, it, it took, um, it was, it, I took a risk in changing everything we'd done because my first year there, we'd been pretty successful. And so for us to change everything about that was a really big risk because if it had failed, people would have looked at me like, well, you had a good thing going, why'd you change it? And so again, it's, it's, the, courage, it's the courage to do something different the confidence to believe it's going to work, but the humility to say, okay, if it doesn't, let's cut bait and try again. Uh, and, and so part of, part of developing the, the confidence is just being willing to do it. Uh, another part of it is making sure that you're prepared. I mean, I know that when I'm teaching a class, I feel more confident about the material when I've really prepared that lesson plan. I don't feel confident if I put together a lesson plan that I don't feel very good about, or maybe I'm less confident about the subject because I haven't studied it in a while or whatever it may be. Same thing with a soccer practice. If I go into practice knowing what we're going to do that day, I feel really confident that we're going to get it done. If I show up at practice and I think, huh, I wonder what we should work on today. That's not going to go well for anybody. Same thing in the home. If I know what we stand for, then I can feel confident that we're going to try to lead our kids that way. If I'm not really sure what we stand for or it changes every day or we're just kind of floating with the wind or the breeze, that, that's not good for anybody. So part of the confidence is also being prepared for your tasks 
and continuing to grow in that. So it's reading books, it's doing things like listening to podcasts like this, where you continue to grow in your leadership and learn new things and be willing to adjust as necessary. So you are an educator and in your book, Inverted Leadership, you talk about the importance of education in Mm -hmm. leadership. So I'd like for you to talk about that and then also how to go beyond just the educational aspect. Yeah, in the book, there's a, a, a chapter that I really enjoyed writing. It was about, um, it was kind of asking the question, which is more important, education or experience? Because there are a lot of people like me who are in academia. I say academia loosely. I teach high school, not college, but it's, <laughs> it's at least relatively academic. I try to make it that way. Um, but there are a lot of people in the academic world who think you've got to read books and you've got to have formal education. And, and there's a place for that, certainly. I mean, I'm a high school teacher. I believe there's a place for formal education. At the same time, there's a lot to be said for personal experience. You know, there are a lot of people who become good at something, not because they got a college degree in it, but because they just did it and learned by doing. And I think there's a place for both. The answer to the question, which is more important, is neither. Because there are certain things you can, you can certainly learn better by reading a book than by going out and trying to do it. Like, it's hard to teach history by building things out of clay models or popsicles. You know what I mean? Like, those yeah. are cool projects. But it's hard to learn history by doing. You learn history by reading it and writing it and discussing it. That Because history is the study of the past using written documents. On the other hand, there are certain things you learn much better by doing. Like I've read a bunch of books about coaching soccer, but the best thing that helps me coach soccer is going out and coaching soccer with people who know more than I do, who can correct me when I get it wrong or um, point me in a different direction if I'm going off course, right? It, you can read whole books about how to hit a baseball. If you have no idea what it's like to actually stand in the batter's box and face down a pitcher, all the books in the world aren't going to give you the experience of standing in a batter's box. So there's a place for both the formal education side and the experience side. And I would say the ideal is to do both. So if you're a leader, one of the ways you become better at leading is by leading, whether that's something like a family or a small group or a Bible study or a Sunday school class, or whether it's leading a soccer team or a classroom, or you can lead by studying it. Again, reading books, listening to podcasts, interviewing other leaders. And I would argue the best way to do that is both. You need to blend the experience and the formal education. Well, Joel, we're going to be getting down to the end of the interview in just a second, but there's one more principle that I'd like for you to talk about from your book, and that is the principle of being the first. Could you share about that a little bit? Absolutely. That's one of my favorites. I learned that idea in large part because of my older daughter. Uh, Be the first. There's three components to it. It means uh, you need to give credit where it's due. You need to uh, take responsibility even when it's not yours to take, and you need to show respect to everyone. And, and what I mean by those things is, as a leader, well, I, I use this example in my speeches. If you're driving along, again, you're, you're from the south, I'm from the south, so this will make sense. Let's say you're driving down a country road, there's a, a, a wooden fence, right, that you're driving past. And you see, on top of one of the wooden fence posts, you see a turtle sitting there. What's the one thing you can know for certain? Didn't get there on its own. Didn't get there on its own. That's 100% right. Turtles can't climb, turtles can't fly. If there's a turtle on a fence post, somebody put it there. That's you and that's me. No leader in the history of the world has ever accomplished anything without help. And so part of that is just give credit where it's due. I don't win soccer games. I'm a coach. I haven't scored a goal in 19 years, right? So I need to give my, my players credit. When we win soccer games and I interview with the newspaper, I don't say, look what a great job I did coaching them. I say, look what a great job that kid did. They worked really hard. They, they prepared well. They came out ready to play. Their mentality, you know what I mean? Give credit where it's due. And then um, – Sometimes as a leader, you have to take responsibility, even if it's not actually your fault. So when we lose soccer games, I took the blame for that. 
uh, the old expression in coaching is players win games, coaches lose them. And it's a great expression because what that means is I am to shield my players from the criticism. If we didn't play well, I'm not going to throw the players under the bus and say, well, if they hadn't played so crappy today, we'd have won. No, no. If we didn't play well, I'm taking responsibility. I must not have had them mentally prepared. Maybe I didn't have them physically prepared. Maybe my game plan was wrong. Whatever it is, it doesn't do my followers any good for me to throw them under the bus to try to make myself look better. Because one, people are going to see through that. And two, my followers or my players or whatever you want to put it, they're going to resent me for it. So instead, as a leader, when things don't go well, even if it's not my fault, I need to raise my hand and say, that's on me. Because my, my, the people that I'm in charge of, they will appreciate that about me. And therefore, they will know that when something goes wrong in the future, they're going to they're gonna be shielded from the criticism because I'm going to take it on myself. So you, you, you give credit where it's due. You take responsibility. And then last, you need to, again, show respect to other people, even if they don't necessarily show you that. I would argue, no, I wouldn't argue. I would say flat out, that's the part that I'm the least good at. Sometimes it's really hard as a high school teacher to be respectful to semi-literate, disrespectful freshmen. Hmm. That can be really, really difficult. It doesn't mean it's okay when I'm disrespectful to them, but I will fully admit that it happens on a fairly regular basis. It's not something I'm proud of. It is something I'm still growing uh, in terms of doing better. Um, but it's important to do that. And again, I, I learned this idea about be the first from my, um, I mentioned I learned it from my older daughter. Uh, years ago, she was in a situation where one of the boys in her class was being bullied because his parents were going through a divorce and he was, uh, he had to wear the same clothes to school four or five days in a row because he couldn't get to one of his parents' houses to get new, to get his, some of his other clothes. And the kids in his class were just giving him a hard time. And you can't tell cause I'm, I'm sitting down during this interview, but I'm five foot three and a half inches tall and I'm the tall parent. So my daughter in fifth grade, you can imagine, she's like a little hobbit looking kid. <laughs> and, uh, and she stands there and, and she looks at these much bigger kids than her and she says, just back off. Yeah, how about you just leave him alone? He didn't do anything to you. And what's incredible about that is not just that she did it, because I'll fully admit, that's one of the proudest moments I've ever had as a father. Now my older daughter, she's incredibly intelligent. She has sung in international choir at Carnegie Hall in New York City. That's nothing compared to the pride I felt when I learned about what she did in the classroom that day. And the other thing that made me incredibly proud of her was that she never told me about it. The reason I found out about it is because that little boy's parent called me that night and told me what she had done. And another little girl in the class who saw it, her mom called me that night and told me what my daughter had done. And so my kid did this incredible thing and stood up for someone else. And she didn't ever come home and say a word about it because she didn't really think it was that big a deal. She just did what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stand up for people. You're supposed to encourage people. You're supposed to stand up to bullies. And, and that made such a huge, I mean, profound impact on me because as a parent, I'd love to take credit for that. I don't know that I had anything to do with it. I think she's, I think she's just an amazing person. And, uh, and she did this incredible thing that I was able to share that story. Uh, I've, I've shared that on stages all around the Southeast. I shared it in the book and I'm really proud of my daughter because I don't care what else she does with the rest of her life. I'm proud of her because of who she is and who she showed herself to be in that kind of moment. That was what it means to be the first. Leaders need to be the first to give credit, take responsibility, and show respect. Joel, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Thank you for asking, Josh. It's been a pleasure. I'm telling you, I love getting to chat with people about leadership. I'm passionate about it. Um, if you want to find out more about me, you can check out any of my websites. Uh, I've got one being built right now. That's my name. It's joelwhallbaker.com. Uh, my main website right now is reallifeleading.com. And then you can also find out more information from the blended family side of things at a website called stepdadding.com. 
Uh, you can find me on social media under my name on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Joel W. Hallbaker. I'm on all those places. And I would love to, uh, I would love to chat with anybody in your audience that has questions. If anybody, if you come by my website and uh, you can drop me an email, I'll send you a free copy, uh, a PDF copy of my ebook. Um, if you ask real nicely, I'll probably just send you a PDF of the book that's on Amazon as well. I'm totally okay. Because mm. the thing is, honestly, I, and I told my wife this when I wrote it, she knows it. I'm not interested in making money off the book. It's already paid for itself. All I'm interested in is helping people improve their leadership. If you want a copy of my book, email me. I'll send you a PDF for free. I want you to have it more than I want you to have to pay for it. I just, I want people to become better leaders. And if you think this can help you, I'd be glad to share it with you. Joel, thank you so much for your generosity and sharing with us today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Now, I can say that Joel really is someone who wants to give first. So I encourage you to follow up with him if what he said today resonated with you. He wants to help you in your leadership journey, and I love people like that. Now, there were tons of things that were helpful in today's episode, but there are three things that I would like to highlight. The first is Joel's definition of leadership in his book, Inverted Leadership. And he said, leadership is the art of helping people become better versions of themselves through positive influence. The next is his definition of confident humility, which was a term that I think is really helpful as we're thinking about how we should approach leadership. He said, confident humility is taking what you're good at and using it not for your own good, but in the service of others. And the third thing is Joel's concept of being the first in leadership. And you can be the first by doing three things. First of all, giving credit where credit is due. Second of all, taking responsibility even when it's not yours to take, which of the three, that's probably the most difficult thing for me to do. And then the third, Joel said, is the most difficult for him, which is to show respect to everyone. Now, I hope you'll join us again on Monday because we're going to be talking with a certified chief happiness officer who's had almost three decades of experience honing her craft, and she has some great insight to share with you. Until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, 
Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.